It's the fastest growing, most exciting sport in North America. the fans, indoor soccer was more than just a game between two teams. This was exciting, entertaining. Fans all over the country fell in love with a sport that has it all. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Civic Center. Sold out for the home opener of the Baltimore Blast. I'm Al Trowling along with Ted Patterson. In just a few seconds, you'll be meeting the Baltimore Blast for the very first time in their home opener. The atmosphere here is absolutely electric as it's the Baltimore Blast and the Philadelphia Fever, both with a 1-3 and three record and both of them struggling to find some kind of secret to what makes this thing all happen in indoor soccer. Right now, let's pick up the introductions of both teams Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right. Hey there, everybody. It's a it's a new brand new year. And boy, oh boy, we're, we're, we're out of the gates. Let's get going. Here we go. It's the major indoor soccer league this week here on Good Seats Still Available, our curious little journey into uh, what used to be in professional sports. And uh, as you know, uh, if you've listened to any episodes in our uh, in our previous cavalcade of uh, of interviews, and of course you can find all those at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and or wherever else you find podcasts, uh, we've done a lot in the world of soccer, and in particular we are fascinated by the major indoor soccer league, the MISL, uh, that indoor variety that uh, just uh, took the United States uh, sports scene by a storm uh, from the late 70s through pretty much the early 90s or so. Uh, and uh, that's the topic this week uh, as we um, finally get to our uh, our conversation uh, about uh, one of those teams, the Denver Avalanche. You remember them from 1980 to 1982, two seasons, count them, uh, in the MISL. And that little uh, clip that you heard was sort of a little assemblage of some of the highlights of the uh, season prior uh, in the Major Indoor Soccer League. Yes, the dulcet tones of, uh, of Terry Lewicki. Uh, who we'd love to get on this show at some point, um, who was, uh, I would say, is probably the uh, uh, 
the biggest champion uh, PR wise and uh, uh, broadcast wise for the MISL in its first couple of years in particular. Uh, you heard in there Al Troutwig, uh, uh, another guest we are aiming to get hopefully fairly soon, uh, doing uh, some of his uh, uh, commentary for the USA Cable Network, uh, which was sort of the home of the major indoor soccer league for some time. And you heard a whole bunch of uh, exciting sort of uh, uh, zeitgeist there, right? Because uh, the MISL, right, uh, in many respects, uh, was uh, sort of the progenitor of what uh, we enjoy today. In lots of our uh, our game uh, uh, pregame festivities, shall we say, uh, when it comes to uh, getting the crowd all pumped up for uh, the action that's on the field. I mean, uh, you have to remember late 70s, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea of, uh, of exploding uh, devices and, and mirrored, mirrored disco balls and, and, and light shows and uh, and loud announcers and all that kind of stuff that that largely came from the major indoor soccer league and the uh, creative geniuses. Uh, of the Lywicki brothers and uh, and a whole bunch of other uh, promoters. Uh, we, we've talked to a few of those. Uh, Doug Verb, for example, a great uh, conversation you should check out in our uh, tra- uh, vast trove of interviews. Uh, Mike Manchel, uh, Michael Manchel had a great uh, a series of uh, anecdotes about uh, some of those things. And and that was uh, part of the fun and, uh, uh, and excitement that this league really was uh, was all about the MISL. And, you know, at the tail end of that clip you heard was uh, some of the lead up to uh, the uh, All-Star game uh, that uh, St. Louis uh, hosted, the St. Louis Steamers being their first year. And uh, and as we'll hear in our conversation with our guest this week, Ron Meyerhofer, uh, he was the, uh, the founder and the owner of that team called the Denver Avalanche that began its journey into the MISL for two short but very interesting years. Uh, in uh, 1980, the 1980-81 season. And uh, as you'll hear in our chat, uh, Ron was in the stands uh, for some of those all-star festivities. And even the uh, championship series uh, later that season, uh, the season prior, 80-81. Sorry, no, my mistake. I can't get my years straight, 79-80 in uh, the spring of 1980. And uh, it was hard, frankly, watching on television, but certainly in the stands not to get caught up in all that excitement. And uh, I think you'll hear in uh, in Ron's uh, commentary in our chat uh, the uh, that enthusiasm and that excitement, uh, you know, uh, carried him, I think, uh, despite perhaps uh, some uh, uh, more uh, uh, logical reasoning, uh, especially when it came uh, came to finances and and, and all the other things uh, to, to go full bore and, and, and own and run a team. Uh, as you can tell uh, in our conversation with Ron, Ron being a lifetime a soccer enthusiast, not sort of his day job, right? A corporate executive uh, by day. But uh, uh, clearly uh, you take that sort of uh, that pixie dust and the excitement of the MISL, uh, marry that with the passion of a, a soccer enthusiast, uh, scramble together a couple of bucks, uh, as Ron did with his brother and a bunch of other folks. And uh, it made sense. Let's, let's let's go for it. Let's bring soccer indoor style, the MISL, to Denver, and uh, and that's uh, our journey this week uh, in our conversation with Ron Meyerhofer, the uh, the founder and the owner of the two year uh, uh, extension or, or franchise uh, uh, known as the Denver Avalanche. No, not the Colorado Av- Avalanche of the National Hockey League. No, the Denver Avalanche. Our conversation coming up in just a couple of seconds. We want to say hello uh, and uh, thank you to uh, one of our brand new sponsors, and that's Streaker Sports. You'll find them at streakersports.com. 
And uh, Streaker Sports is, uh, I, I, I think their tagline is they're purveyors of sports culture or the purveyor of sports culture. Let's let's be uh, real specific. Uh, and uh, that sports culture really extends into a lot of the zeitgeist that we uh, explore here on this show each and every week. Uh, a lot of uh, teams and memories, but especially of the variety of, uh, of the realm of defunct and uh, no longer with us and uh, previously incarnated. Uh, there's a lot of great sort of stuff out there in our various journeys into professional sports fandom. And uh, the folks at Streaker Sports, uh, like yours truly, just don't want to forget them uh, or at least want to investigate uh, what happened along the way uh, and perhaps circle and uh, uh, and uh, keep uh, a little memory alive of some of those journeys, some of those stops along the way. And at StreakerSports.com, uh, you will find all kinds of great stuff from uh, all kinds of sports and baseball and soccer and football and basketball and hockey and you name it. And hopefully we've got a bunch of uh, promotional uh, uh, things coming up uh, during the course of this year. So stay tuned. But make sure when you go to StreakerSports.com and check out their stuff, if you find something you like, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS and you will get 10% off all of your purchases. That's good seats. That's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases at streakersports.com. Streaker Sports purveyor, singular, of sports culture. And uh, we thank them for uh, joining our growing roster uh, of great sponsors here on the big show. Uh, all right, let's uh, move right along. Let's get into our conversation uh, about the old Denver avalanche of the MISL indoor soccer coming at you with Ron Meyeroffer. Our conversation just a couple of weeks ago, just before the uh, turn of the new year. Enjoy. I have, having read your your book and a half, really the Denver book and the um, and your soccer uh, uh, vagabond book. Um, I'm really interested in this story about this team, and it may seem kind of uh, uh, a small slice of soccer history, but it's one that uh, very squarely fits our genre here. Uh, but maybe before we get going into the Denver Avalanche uh, story, maybe you could give our audience a little bit of background as to how you got involved in soccer in the first place uh, as a player, as a fan, because it wasn't your calling career-wise to start, for sure. Boy, well, I... I, I'm a first-generation German-American. My uh, my father played in Germany, and I started playing when I was five. So he formed the first youth soccer league in Buffalo, New York, and I participated in that, and we belonged to a German soccer club, uh, and that soccer club had uh, a youth team, uh, second team, and then the senior team. And I progressed through that process. And during that process, I had several of the players on the senior team who played on the senior team, but more importantly, they were teachers at a private school called Park School of Buffalo. And uh, they ended up giving me and my brother scholarships uh, for soccer to the school so our last couple three years in high school were at a private school which was probably life-changing that led me then on to play at uh, cornell to play for the national team and then i've been coaching since i've been 19 years old so that's a long time <laughs> 
Well, that's but, kind of a, a fast shot. <laughs> no, that's good. But but so uh, but that obviously didn't lead to your career, right? So as your no. jobs, as you sort of got out of college and sort of looked at the world as to what you were maybe a little bit, what, what did you sort of gravitate into then? And then maybe we can segue into how the uh, sport of soccer professionally ensnared you to maybe jump into the world. Okay. Uh, actually, they are intertwined. Uh, my first job out of college was with the Standard Oil Company. Uh, and I joined Standard Oil of Ohio, uh, and they sent me down to Cincinnati. So I was still playing soccer in every city I'd been to. So during the course of my business uh, career, uh, I traveled to oh, many different cities. Uh, I think I, I have played soccer in 42 cities and in 19 states. Uh, I ended up joining a company in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, that was probably my second shot at being a, a coach for my kids. I have four sons three of which went later on to Penn State on athletic soccer scholarships. Uh, so when I was promoted to Denver uh, as vice president of sales and marketing by the company, I continued to play and continued to coach and co-sponsored the development of, of travel soccer in Colorado. And by the way, I'd also had done that while I was in uh, Texas. So I had a good combination of playing and coaching by the time the late 70s developed. At that time, uh, like many of us, uh, I had taken a vacation at Virgin Gorda in the Caribbean and contemplating what to do with my life. I was a fairly successful uh, senior executive with a company that's now $21 billion in sales, but I wanted to do something else with my life. So I decided I wanted to be a sports owner, a soccer team owner, and that led to the avalanche. All right. Well, all right. Let's, let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. So you're, you're the quintessential sort of soccer dad and, and very actively so, right? You're not only, you're playing still a bit, and you're also getting uh, deeply enmeshed, and I guess your uh, your son's uh, soccer activities to the point of being not only a super volunteer, but being an organizer and, and running stuff both in in Texas and in, and in uh, in the Denver area, right? So so this is you know it's clearly a passion, right? That that's that's not yet a a, a job per se. It is, but it's a labor of love, right? Uh, and it still is, by the way. I have a soccer training company today, so I've been in the sport. I'm 83, so I've been in the sport 78 years. There you go. Well, that, that, that's that's the allure. That's the uh, the uh, the entrapment that the sport has, I think, uh, on on people who've been in it and involved with it for such a long time. All right, so take us back then to this little vacation of yours and and how the idea sort of pops into your head, and then you know how you sort of nurture that idea, perhaps say with your wife. Uh, who probably needs to check your sanity maybe in the process. And then once that, then how do you start to, you know, how do you begin to kind of even bring it into the beginnings of life? Well, you're 
you're you're a good uh, uh, insightful thinker. Uh, my wife and I talked exactly about how I felt about doing something else with my life. And about that time, I had read in Soccer America an article about indoor soccer. So while we were luxurating uh, in Virgin Gorda, I said, look, I think that's a, something I want to try and do. And uh, she said, you've got my support. Let's give it a whirl. Uh, so when I got back to the offices in uh, Denver, Colorado, I was with a company called Information Handling Services. Uh, I had decided I wanted to go forth. So uh, luckily at that time, uh, you may or may not remember, the Nuggets uh, used to play in the um, in Nichols Arena in Denver, Colorado. Sure. Uh, and the mayor of Denver at that time was Bill McNichols, but his brother Steve, the former governor of Colorado, was a consultant to information handling services. So I approached him and I said, look, at I, I have an idea. I'd like to bring indoor soccer, professional soccer, to Denver, but I need an arena. He said, well, I think I can help you talk to the right kind of people. So I went backwards from the standpoint of how you really organize to get a franchise. Uh, I uh, was directed by Steve McNichols at that time to talk to a, a friend of his, Joe Nigro, who had been a state official and was close to the city uh, executive team. So he set up a meeting with me to meet with uh, that group of people, including uh, the mayor. And in the room was a guy called Fred Lutzen, who was a German immigrant, but was running all of the facilities for the city of Denver. So uh, uh, the short story of that is I asked if they could give me exclusive negotiating rights to bring an indoor team into Denver. Well, lo and behold, four or five days later, I got a letter from the city saying I was the exclusive person for indoor soccer in Denver. And you have to go back in history in soccer at that time. We had the North American Soccer League. And you, the Cosmos, were in that league. Uh, we also had uh, the major indoor soccer league in its infancy. And they were both fighting for locations uh, to put franchises or teams into cities. Uh, so I felt it was my advantage to have first the arena and then go to each one of them and see if they were interested in talking to me. Well, <laughs> I first I first chatted uh, with uh, Earl Foreman and Ed Tepper at the MISL and uh, said I liked, I was interested in a franchise. And they said, well, we have a number of people interested in Denver. I said, well, that's fine. I, I just want you to know I have 
the exclusive marketing rights uh, for indoor soccer in Denver, and I think I'm going to go to the NASL. Well, they quickly said, well, why don't you come in and let's talk about it. <laughs> so so in, in a very short period of time, they awarded us a franchise uh, for the small token of $500,000. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's back up there for a second. So, uh, it sounds to me like you're, you're, uh, you know, it's actually kind of a shrewd move, right? You're, you're basically with no real out of pocket money, really. You're just, you're working the connections, right? And the connections that get you this quote unquote exclusive lease or right for lease for this thing called indoor soccer, which I'm sure most people are kind of like, Oh, okay. You know, well, what's that worth a, a letter and why not? And you know, if it, if he's successful, great. And, and yet, you use that as a negotiation tool for, you know, uh, a league that was uh, literally on the come, right? You got uh, Ed Tepper and, and and Earl Foreman, who are, you know, as we've talked about with lots of different uh, leagues and, and whatnot, and entrepreneurs behind them. You know, they're hustling, right? They're trying to get, you know, uh, they got six franchises to start this league, and I'm sure they're, you know, already playing the game of, a, you know, well, you know, we've got other people interested and stuff. But, you know, in many respects... I wonder if that was a it was a shrewd move on your part. I wonder how much of that was uh, thought out uh, and well thought out, or 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 just dumb luck, or or maybe somewhere in between as you try to figure out how to become a pro, pro soccer franchise owner. Yeah, I, I would. I really thought that out first. Uh, in retrospect, and I thought about that a lot, long time. Uh, uh, I I've been in sales, marketing, and general management a long time in my business career. And I tried to put myself in their shoes and how would they react. So I thought, thought through what would be their response. And it, they, their response was exactly as I anticipated. And I had the closer. Yeah, I, I had all the cards and I didn't tell them until the end. Uh, so uh, it, was, it was a thought out strategy. It, it just didn't happen. It, uh, it was thought through. So let, let me ask you this then, though. So you were clearly aware of the one year, uh, I don't know if it was a debacle, but it was certainly only a year, of the Caribou of Colorado outdoor NASL team in Denver. Uh, did I that and, and did that give you pause about thinking about uh, pursuing a franchise in Denver, uh, even though it was uh, the indoor variety? No, not really. And earlier I had met with... Uh, uh, Pele, and that's another story. But uh, I followed, I followed the uh, uh, Caribou, and its coach was was Dave Clements. You may or may not know Dave. Uh, sure. So I was aware of that. But as outlined by Tepper and Foreman, the MISL first uh, objective was to be entertainment, and that interested me. And their second objective was to have North American soccer players. And that really uh, attracted me because being an American soccer player in those days, nobody of consequence at the professional level wanted too many of us. You know, I had to go play in Canada in order to play professionally at that time uh, when I was a, 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 in my early 20s. So I, I really liked the philosophy of the major indoor soccer league. All right. So you, you get this exclusive right and, and you've gotten the deans of the MISL to say, we're interested. Let's do this. Now comes the hard part, right? You got to raise some dough. 
right? You've got to yeah. uh, <laughs> give our audience a sense of sort of how you did that. And uh, I guess the uh, the probably the very uh, essential role, at least in the earliest uh, part of it, uh, of your brother, I guess, in all of this, right? Right. Uh, Howie, uh, Howard, uh, Howie was in San Francisco and an extraordinarily successful stockbroker uh, and had done extraordinarily well financially. Um, so I called Howie up, uh, my brother, and asked him what he thought. He said, hey, I love it. I'm in. I said, well, we have to raise at least $100,000 because that's the down payment. You know, how do we do that? He said, well, I got some ideas. Uh, let me get back to you. So a couple of days later, he called me and said, uh, my neighbor is a very successful real estate developer uh, in San Mateo, California, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and he's interested. Uh, so we're going to fly in, and we'd like to meet with you. And they did. And we sat down, and uh, they said, hey, we can make this happen. Uh, what do you think it's going to take? And I said, well, I think we're going to need about three million bucks to run run the operation for uh, a year or two. And we need, right now, we need a $100,000 check in order to close the deal. So uh, Al Bressy put up the $100,000 and we formed a general partnership on a, on a napkin <laughs> in a restaurant in Denver, Colorado. And that's how we started that. Yeah. So we, we had $100,000 I called uh, uh, Ed Tepper and said, hey, uh, we're in, uh, we'll, 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 we want a franchise. And uh, they said, good, we'll think it through with uh, our team here. We'll let you know. Uh, then we went about trying to raise uh, uh, several million dollars. Uh, and Al Bressi, had a lot of friends, as did my brother, in San Francisco. And we uh, hired an attorney called Howard Gelt. People don't know him, but they probably know uh, Gary Hart. He was Harry, Gary Hart's uh, attorney and his best man at his wedding and probably would have been in the uh, president's cabinet had uh, Gary Hart been elected president. But Howard was a very, very uh, effective and outstanding uh, business attorney. So we structured a limited partnership and offered people shareholders 60 at $60,000 a piece uh, to uh, join in. And we raised uh, money from mostly San Francisco people but uh, two other people in, in Denver, Bob Brown, you may or may not have heard of uh, Bill Daniels' uh, cable company, the predecessor to most of the cable companies in the United States, and Mike Storita, who, who was the chief executive officer of a oil and gas company out of Oklahoma, who lived in Denver. So that that kind of made up our financial team. We raised 
almost $1.8 million uh, under that particular limited partnership. Uh, so that then gave us at least the financial ability to say to Ed Tepper and Earl Foreman, you know, we, here's our funding and here's our application and when can you say yes? And they said, well, we'll let you know uh, shortly. And so uh, I think it was probably in, I'm going to guess it was February of 1980, uh, the All-Star game for the Major Inter Soccer League was in St. Louis. And they called us and invited Al Bressy, my brother, Howie, and myself uh, to St. Louis. And earlier the day of the competition, the, the All-Star game, uh, uh, informed us we had won the rights to the franchise for Denver. Yeah, and and it's and the funny that's in St. Louis, right? Because that's uh, you know for for folks who don't remember, right? The uh, uh, the the St. Louis Steamers, especially in the early part of uh, of the '80s, were uh, I, I guess phenomenon is not uh, too uh, too strong a word for it, right? Because they were selling out, they were drawing uh, you know sellout crowds at uh, at the uh, at the Checker Dome there, and and frankly, I think we're probably the most. A successful team, even after the entire run of the major indoor soccer league. I mean, they were, they were something else, right? So, what a perfect place to, uh, I guess, wine and dine and or close a uh, relationship, right? To be in the in the in the midst of all of that sort of uh, frenetic excitement. Yeah, it was. Steamers. It was pretty exciting actually, and I uh, got to meet uh, Stan Musial because he was an investor in the St. Louis Steamers at that time. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Steve was a great guy. Uh, so we were impressed, to say the least. Uh, and the nice thing about the St. Louis Steamers, they were predominantly North American players. Uh, and we said, geez, we can do this. You know, we can do the same thing. So we were really pumped up uh, about the opportunity. And, uh, and, and I'm glad to this day that, we saw our first game, really, at the the St. Louis Steamers play. You know, so it was worthwhile. All right, so you're coming off of that. You're, you you got a high, if you will. No no pun, I guess, of the Denver and Rocky Mountain analogy. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's now time to sort of get to work, right? So you've got the money. You've uh, you've got the, uh, the the league interested. Denver, obviously, a very – so maybe a, a quick sort of layout of sort of what you're – doesn't have to be too detailed, but give us a sense of sort of how you think uh, this team is sort of coming into play. I guess the pl- the first place that that starts with is what the hell is the name of the team going to be? Well, yeah, that was one of the first uh, uh, things that we thought of, and so we decided to uh, have a name the team contest. And that, I remember there's, there's, vividly, an original, there's an original idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. It got great play in the newspapers. Uh, most everybody, with probably the exception of Woody Page, supported the Avalanche and the the embryonic franchise. So we had a name the team contest, and we had several thousand uh, names that were 
given to us for the team. And we chose the avalanche, uh, a young girl, 11-year-old girl, uh, uh, wanted. And so we sent her and her family, the family of four, to some resort in Mexico for a vacation. That was the, the prize. And we then took the name the Avalanche. Sorry to say, by the way, that that was one of my early mistakes. I didn't know anything about uh, recording trademarks, so we never did that. And when we uh, sold the team to the Tacoma Stars, some guy went down and got the name Avalanche and sold that to the current Denver Avalanche hockey team and got paid four season tickets at center court at a hundred bucks a pop each ticket for life for the name Avalanche. It was that popular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, so. it, but, but certainly thematically it makes that made a ton of sense. Right. And, and you, you involve the, uh, you know, the, the community, you get some press uh, sort of related to that. And, uh, you know, who knows, I guess everything in hindsight. Right. Um, so yeah. then how, how do you go about building the team? Because uh, you mentioned Mr. Dave Clements before, right? He was. Yeah, of, uh, well, he was seems like one of your first pieces, right? On the playing field. Right. Most people don't know that they, they go to a sporting event and they go there to enjoy uh, uh, the entertainment. But they don't know what it takes to put a game on. Uh, it's huge. I mean, there's so many decisions every week that have to be made in order to get a professional sports franchise on the field. So our first challenge was to put together a staff of people and advisors because we had no experience in running a sports franchise. I didn't, uh, neither did my partners. So we had to pull together a team of people that could hopefully do well at running the franchise. And we did. We recruited a number of uh, people and executives that I knew, uh, uh, several that I did not know, uh, and put together a very formidable front office staff. Uh, and then our next challenge was really to find a coach. Uh, and that's another part of hindsight, I guess. Uh, at the time, uh, my sons were, three of my sons were at Penn State playing soccer, and the assistant head coach of Penn State at the time was Mike Ditchfield. I don't know if you know that name or not. Uh, Mike Ditchfield had been on the uh, English U19 national team as a goalkeeper. Well, I called Mike and asked him if he had any recommendations. For a coach, he says, yeah, Dave Clemens just left here on one of our seminars, and he lives in in Denver, and the caribou has folded. So I contacted Dave Clements, who played for the Cosmos, played on the Irish national team, played for Everton in the what's now the Premier League, uh, was a fabulous uh, coach and wanted to build a sport for American players. So we quickly met with Dave and we hired Dave. So at that state 
We had our front out office staff. We had our coach. The next thing was to get players. <laughs> uh, and a lot of things were happening concurrently, obviously. We had to sell marketing uh, uh, materials. We had, a, we had to get a radio, TV. There were a lot of things that the front office staff had to take on. But Dave had to take on everything that dealt with players. And since the league at that time said they believed in North American players, we found out later, by the way, the rule was only three North American players had to play in a game. So teams like your Chicago uh, team only played three North American players. The rest, they recruited players from around the world, as did Cleveland and the Cosmos and other teams, you know. but nonetheless, we recruited a number of players. We went to the first draft, and we couldn't believe how inattentive the teams were to drafting American players at the time. So we got some extraordinarily good players that some of us were aware of us. Some of us had read about or Dave knew about or Mike Ditchfield had known about. And nonetheless, we recruited a fairly good North American team of players. So that takes us to, we now had a front office staff. Uh, we got the financing in place uh, to take us at least through a year, maybe two years of uh, operations. Uh, we hired a coach and we hired players. All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, there was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball. But obviously, the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball, and it remains to this day. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, He of Dutch heritage, of course, Uh, plenty of uh, great legendary years at club play as well as national team play. Uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles 
Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL, with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That too uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. All right. So give me a sense on the marketing side, right? So a couple of interesting little anecdotes in your book, uh, I think revolve around well, two things that stand out. Uh, one is uh, the uh, tax advantaged way of helping uh, get more people into the building. Uh, and the other is, uh, is the, uh, the dance team, the uh, Dane, the snowcaps, uh, right. that, how that sort of came about. Maybe you can give us Gary, a little sense of both of those. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, there are three or four things that are of note, but uh, the dance team was interesting. Uh, about the time we started the franchise, uh, Edgar Kaiser, who used to own the Denver Broncos, fired all of the cheerleaders. You probably are too young to remember that. Uh, but uh, so they were all lounging around, and Mike Ditchfield was dating one of them called Debbie Laporta. So we invited Debbie in to chat with us and said, look, we'd like to have you consider bringing yourself and some of the uh, Denver Bronco cheerleaders to the Avalanche. Well, she said, I'd be thrilled to do that. Uh, what would you pay us? I said, well, what do you think we should pay it? She said, well, how about 15 bucks? For $15 a game. I said, you got a deal. So she brought in 18 cheerleaders. <laughs> and obviously our players went crazy when they saw them. Um, and that, that's, that's started thinking about another marketing idea, which I'll uh, chat with you about a little later. But anyway, we had, so we had the, the Denver Avalanche we stole from the Denver Broncos. And all of a sudden we were on the map at least with the media in the city of Denver. Um, the, uh, now, so you wanted me to talk about the dance team or what was the other one you wanted? Yeah, well, you, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, some of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the reach out to the community uh, for uh, oh, yeah. if you were, an innovative well, filling the seat, shall we say. Yeah, what happened, uh, a great indoor sports and fitness center opened up in Greenwood Village uh, by a guy called John Madden. He was a uh, very, very successful uh, business uh, contractor and developer in Denver and very philanthropically involved with 455 charities. So I belonged to the Sports and Fitness Club, and I mentioned to John that uh, I was looking for some way to bring uh, disenfranchised 
economically disenfranchised or medically uh, inhibited uh, or charitable kinds of people to our game. I, I was smart enough to realize that we were relatively new and we couldn't anticipate sellouts uh, and there was no problem with uh, offering free tickets. So John says, I have the answer. I can provide buses for as many seats as you want to give us free and I'll have, I'll have those charities fill the buses. So we did that and we averaged about 1,900 economically and medically disadvantaged uh, participants over the course of the avalanche. Uh, and I was able to convert that into a tax savings for the partners as a charitable deduction, the cost of a ticket. So that, that was then deducted from their, from their initial $60,000 investment. But it was fun. We, we had blind people. We had people in wheelchairs. We had people that didn't speak English. Uh, we had uh, kids, grandfathers, uh, and they're all pounding away on the floor, uh, the chairs, uh, making sounds. And we got, we got chewed up pretty badly by the press, especially Woody Page uh, from ESPN uh, over that. But nonetheless, uh, I, to this day, I think it's one of the best things I've done in my own life in helping those people uh, see a professional event when they couldn't afford to do so otherwise, you know. Well, it's kind of win-win, right? I mean, you're 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 oh. doing doing great in the in the community, but you're also uh, you know economically uh, doing something sound that uh, you know uh, not every game is going to be a sellout, right? I don't know how many sellouts you actually really had, right? But you know, it's it's uh, and it also generates further buzz in the community about just hopefully how much fun and excitement they're having, and and I guess that's kind of what you you became known known for relatively relatively quickly was sort of a fun. Uh, uh, time out at the at the stadium, right? Which was partially your doing, but partially the MISL as a product, right? Well, the product was a soccer game. Uh, the marketing was 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 ours specifically. We did a lot of things that had never been done before. Sports marketing, not only the MISL, but in all marketing in sports. An example uh, would be the way we priced the stadium. I'm still kind of proud the way we did that. We, we had done a, uh, a research study with a company called Pacific Select, Matt Levine, on the West Coast. Uh, big time NBA, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball uh, consultant who uh, became known to us. And he, they concluded uh, that the majority of uh, families and females were not going to professional sports to winter professional sports events. Uh, the the Nuggets and uh, the hockey team really catered to the 18 to 35 male uh, type of deal. So what we did is we reversed the pricing on a stadium, unheard of in sport. Uh, you probably know that a hockey rink 
is slightly narrower than a professional NBA uh, floor. So McNichols Arena uh, would cover the hockey rink with a with the flooring when they played the NBA. Well, and likewise, we'll put our carpet down when, they, when we played. Well, that left room on the sides. Uh, so they would put in about six rows of aluminum seating. Well, we priced that for all the kids, four bucks a ticket. So when the t- TV cameras panned down, they panned down on all these kids going wild and clopping their feet on the aluminum uh, uh, seats, and it made a thunderous noise. And uh, we filled we filled all of those very rapidly. Well, that brought the families, you know, uh, and we soon we had the largest percentage of our our clients, our spectators were families, kids, and women. So we uh, we we did a lot of things to reinforce that with our marketing activities. An example, as you see it today, but we were the first ones to have the the smoke come out of the tunnel when the players entered. Uh, they all had a rose in their hand and they presented a rose to a some female in the stands. We did all those kind of weird things at the time, but it, it, it really rocked the fans and they went crazy. Yeah. Well, it also, it also became kind of a signature for many pro sports uh, thereafter at the MISL exactly, yeah. generally, right? Yeah. I mean, with the Liwiki brothers and I mean, you're all well, the Liwiki adopted it, you know, and they did well with it and they took, they carried it over to the NBA, you know, so yeah. Yeah, we're proud of that. So, um, give me a sense then of uh, of what your impressions of the MISL generally was. The play, the other owners, uh, how solid uh, a, a proposition did you think this was? I think there were a lot of people at that time, right? The early 1980s. You know, they saw well, the yeah. MISL wobbling, right? But they saw the indoor game kind of getting a lot of attention. I think there were a lot yeah. of people who thought that this was going to be what pro soccer was for this country uh, going forward because of the MISL. Well, I, I remember several. Uh, Howard Cosell comes to mind. Uh, he was a big indoor soccer fan, and I sat next to him uh, at a casino, believe it or not, down in in uh, uh, Panama, Panama City, and chatted with him briefly about the Avalanche. But yeah, Pete Rose owned a former MISL team, the Cincinnati team. Yet Stan Musial involved. Uh, Earl of Pearl Monroe had to choose between soccer and basketball and obviously chose basketball, uh, went on to a Hall of Famer career, but he was, he was into it. Uh, it, it. The ownership was pretty solid looking at them on paper. I think he had Lee Stern, major real estate developer in Chicago. Uh, you, had, uh, you just had... Uh, a number of the owners that were significant, either business uh, owners or uh, financial gurus in some shape, owning apartments and condos and 
real estates and shopping centers and that kind of stuff. So the league looked to be fairly strong uh, when we entered. We were, without, without question, the weakest, we thought, uh, of the teams, only because we did it with no money down. <laughs> Well, let's uh, but, but let's put it in 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 context though, right? So your first season, I think you were the fourth highest attended team in the league, and I think the second season when there were even more teams in the league overall, you were you were still drawing well. You were fifth, I guess, in in terms of uh, team attendance. So it seems like even yeah, I never looked at it that way, but I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it seems that you know that's that's a pretty good marker of success. All right, but let me ask you this then. Okay, so when was there any one point or was it sort of an accumulation of points? And, and I guess when did you start to see maybe some initial cracks either in the league itself or in the operation in Denver or, you know, cause it seems like you're still kind of on a high in this early part of this 1980, 81 season. Right. And some great marketing things. You've got some good buzz in the marketplace right. You're competing. Mm -hmm. Well, you're drawing well, what uh, what what could go wrong, Ron? <laughs> well, it's like my father had a saying in his Germanic way, company is lumpany. In, in his way, it was saying, don't have partners. <laughs> and uh, I had a partner who uh, lived in San Francisco, and all of his buddies, except for two investors, uh, lived in San Francisco. He wanted to move the team to San Francisco. And my brother lived in San Francisco. So they really opted to have Al Bressy be the managing general partner. Uh, and that was really the downfall of the Avalanche. The league was going great. The Avalanche was doing well. Uh, we, uh, we, we outdrew the Nuggets from the standpoint of, of season ticket holders. You know, we, we sold more season tickets than uh, than uh, they did. The the previous hockey team is now the New Jersey Devils, but we we outdrew them also. So we were the team was doing great. Uh, we were within twenty thousand dollars of our budget before we started the the whole process. So uh, they chose to make a change in ownership. I gave up a a substantial. Uh, job, you know, a lot of money in those days uh, uh, with my company, uh, uh, even though they funded my retirement after the fact. But uh, I gave up a lot to do the avalanche and to live my dream. Uh, and then the partnership decided they wanted the team really in, in, uh, San Francisco and chose to run it and move it. And that started the, the capital demise. Uh, not the play demise, not the fans, not the league, but really the internal capitalization of the avalanche. Well, why San Francisco? Because there was a team already there with the, with the fog, right? Uh, for, I think it was only yeah. one, one season. They, they, the fog was really not doing well at all. In fact, they were almost close, uh, close to closing down themselves. So they wanted to reinvent the fog with the avalanche in San Francisco. 
Where was the league at all of this, right? I mean, so how much did, how much did this... They were supportive. Uh, the league was supportive. Uh, they gave us a year to try and get our act together. So we went on a sabbatical for a year. And uh, my partners decided not to put the team in San Francisco. So I was left to take care of all the issues to... Uh, we filed a Chapter 11 reorganization and ultimately sold the team to John Best. You probably know John Best. Sure. Tacoma, Tacoma Stars. I think he died recently. Yeah. Uh, anyway, John uh, bought the team and transferred it to, under the MISL to uh, the Tacoma Stars, and they stayed in the league until – so in the earlier mid nineties. Yeah, Tacoma was a very strong. So, but uh, I, I guess I'm I'm just still trying to I'm still trying to get into the the where where sort of it goes off the rails. I mean, at what point? Like, what is the what is the event? Or what is the situation that sort of uh, creates that schism? Right, because it seems like by many accounts, right your your budget uh, 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 judiciousness, your your crowds, your 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 uh, play in the market. Uh, you're doing well, you know, uh, you know, maybe not so you didn't make the playoffs the first year, but you made the playoffs the second year. I mean, it seems like you've got lots of things going for you uh, in terms of stability and or, you know, uh, at least a, a a belief that, you know, this is worth sticking around and, and, and keeping at it. I'm just really I'm really trying to get into sort of why. Why all, was it all of a sudden this sort of uh, rift amongst it, the ownership? Or, it, you know, it was a shock. Uh, Howard Gill called me up and said, Hey, uh, Howie, my brother, and Al Bressy are coming into town and want a meeting tomorrow morning. So, in his office. So, I went there and the three of them walked in and told me that they were making a move in the general partnership and Al was taking over. That there was no uh, ill will between any of us at that time. Uh, to this day, I don't know what was on Al's mind, except what I've been told by my brother, uh, uh, who was threatened by uh, Al Bressy if he, if he voted against Al and for me. There were only three of us, so it took two to, to uh, move me out. Uh, and how he was fearful of all of his business as a stockbroker in in San Francisco. So he later recanted on that. And, uh, but nonetheless, it happened. Uh, but it was a total shock. There was no no bad words ever among the three of us. Uh, Al Bresti made a lot of promises to raise the additional funds because he was the fu- he was the financial investor, the, the capital guy. Uh, I was busy running a franchise, uh, which was a 80 hour a week job, you know. Uh, so uh, I did I did what I thought was my job, and uh, he wanted to relocate, and that the rest is history. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, that, see, I'm just I'm wondering if that you know, from a financial perspective, if that maybe you don't know the answer to that, which is also it, itself interesting. You know, if that was a a recognition that uh, you know either the MISL was was not going to be stable or it was comp- still on the ascendance, and 
you know, he thought he could make more money somehow, either through a franchise sale eventually or in a, in a deeper, perhaps more uh, well-moneyed market, I guess, relative to Denver. I don't know. It's just uh, it's it's a very interesting. But yet in a league that's only not only three or four years old. Right. So th- that also sort of comes into the equation. Right. But it just seems to me that, um, you know, operationally, you guys were kind of running on just about all cylinders as you could. Yeah, we were. I don't know what was in Al's mind. You have, you have to look at history, though, economically. Um, 81, 82, the real estate market dried up, if you remember, and interest rates were over 20%. I suspect that the capitalization that had been promised to us, was he was unable to put together and felt that... A, uh, a precondition to put money in by those investors was that the team be moved to San Francisco so they could enjoy it. Uh, that, that that's really all I could go by because there was nothing else that happened, you know. Uh, and uh, it's too bad. Uh, I think Denver lost a wonderful, you know, athletic professional athletic opportunity. And you know, we had 500,000 uh, bumper stickers on the walls of kids without, throughout the Denver metro area provided for by a, by a, a surf call, the oil and gas Oklahoma, the Denver, Denver, Denver avalanche roars and doors. I mean, we were very, very popular. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was at least operationally that, it was a lot of fun, right? I mean, any any moments that sort of stand out in terms of either on the field or pinch me moments or uh, moments where you kind of knew you'd made it or uh, accolades in the press or any of that kind of stuff? Or was it just sort of a day-to-day? I mean, you say 80 hours. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I think I've been thinking about that. A uh, couple of things. Uh, number one, I we played we we played an all-star game in Buffalo. And I, I'm from Buffalo, New York. And my mother, uh, my father had deceased, but my mother came to the game and sat with us in a box. And she was, as you can imagine, terribly proud of her two sons. Uh, just a sellout crowd in Buffalo. And at the same time during that event, uh, I met Lillian usual for the first time and danced with her. And I'm a dancer by trade. <laughs> I'm, I'm a better, better dancer historically than a soccer player. Uh, but uh, she outdanced me. So that was, that was kind of a fun, fun thing. The, uh, the other thing that we did, which I remember affectionately, uh, is we had a party after every home game. And we averaged 600 fans to each party and many times over a thousand and we would have the players and the the uh the uh snow cats you know the uh, uh snow cats and music and the places of business would feed the team free and we we just had a wonderful time and it was like a family you know so uh I've had a lot of thoughts over the years about, hey, would I do it over again? And uh, 
the answer is no. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, what person, how many of us get an opportunity really to have a dream and have that dream happen and take place? Uh, and I did. So, and we all have things cost any, every step you move in life. It's kind of like a divided road. You can go left, you can go right. I was a major uh, corporate executive. I've been in soccer since then. And, you know, at my advanced uh, age, uh, uh, I can say I've had a great life. You know. All right. So last question then, uh, as we sort of wrap up, and this has been great, uh, Ron, I, I look forward to sort of sharing this with folks because uh, this is this is the kind of cool stuff we'd like to kind of go deep on, right? Because, you know, I'm sure there are people in Denver who remember this team and maybe as kids or, or in particular were growing up and, and just had a blast and then they wonder what happened to this team. Well, that happened uh, That happened two weeks ago. Uh, on a Friday night, I gave, I had a, a book signing, uh, not for the rush, you know, the rush, Timmy Schultz, but for the storm, just many, many, it's now uh, the Rapids Youth Soccer. This girl comes rushing up to me and says, you're a legend, Mr. Meyerhofer. <laughs> and she had played with my sons earlier. She was about 45 or 50 years old. And just to be remembered uh, like that is really heartwarming. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Well, sure. And it's it's generations. Right. And, and you know, albeit for a two year indoor soccer uh, uh, experience. Right. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, the next generation's plural of uh, of soccer players and fans and and all of that is on the backs of of these, you know, maybe their adventures now as we look back on them. But, you know, these are real roots for for people. Um, I guess I guess the last question I would sort of really ask here is you, you kind of hinted at that if you would, you know, if you had the chance to do it again, maybe under the same circumstances, you probably wouldn't, which is actually a surprising answer, but I understand it. Um, what would you have done differently if you could go back and do it? What is it simply the money issue and trying to have more, if you will, direct control of the funds? Or were there any other things that you would have done differently versus uh, what you what you did achieve for those two years? Yeah, I, what, I, what I would have done is I would have arranged, uh, you know, yeah, when you're in that kind of a situation, <clears throat> you know, the phone rings twice a day. People wanting to do things for you or with you or have you do that with their organization. You know, when you don't have a team, the phone doesn't ring. It's, a, it's typical. Uh, I would have, you know, based on the experience I've gained over the years, I guess, I would have really refinanced the team, taken out all of the San Francisco investors and local investors and I think we probably would have still have been continuing with the Denver Avalanche I really do uh, and I'm kind of sorry I didn't have the wisdom or the experience to make that happen in those days uh, but yeah it's what is you know all right this will be my last question I promise do you um, do you think that uh, indoor soccer, at this level, right, the MISL, right, was, you know, for a number of years was literally the only major professional soccer league in this country. Certainly the late mid to late 80s, that was the case when the NASL had folded. Uh, do you do you see uh, uh, 
shall we say, top level. I know there's this uh, major arena soccer league, which is, you know, still, you know, uh, uh, you know, puttering around. But do you think that there ever could be another MISL kind of uh, thing with top notch, you know, exciting, uh, big stadium, you know, crowd filled uh, indoor soccer games? Or, or do we, is that just sort of maybe a, a, a lightning in a bottle and, and doesn't really happen again? Yeah, I've never been asked that question, but uh, I think that the progression of the sport uh, lends itself to probably, and and maybe this is being forward-thinking, but I think the next big indoor soccer league in this country is going to be futsal. You know, futsal is is perhaps not as exciting as MISL soccer, on the other hand, futsal is a great developer for uh, the skill and techniques of the player. So, you know, I, I don't think that with all the competition you have in this day and age from from other sports, which you, we had in those days, and, and all of the social things that are going on, the uh, social media things that are going on, I I, I just don't see indoor soccer as prospering at a major league level. And and I hope I'm wrong because I'm obviously a soccer buff and I would go and support one. Uh, But I I think there are opportunities in soccer and we'll see what the world brings, uh, you know, in that regard. So, you know, Bruce, Bruce Arena and I were, inducted into the Cornell Athletic Hall of Fame at the same time. And Dave Sarekin is her current coach is also a Cornellian. So, you know, we, we've chatted a little bit about it. I, I just think that uh, the country is taking a different uh, tact. And I think the MISL could perhaps have been a major, major player at it. Started, but it's it's really tough competition going against everybody now, and uh, we'll, we'll see. I've, I've been wrong a number of times in my life, and maybe I'm wrong again. Well, and we also have this. By the way, is it possible for me to put a pitch on my books? Well, of course, that was going to be my uh, my last question. So go ahead, give, give us uh, give us all that. Of course, that's partially the reason why we're doing this show, so we can get uh, some people interested in buying your books. So go ahead, yeah. throw it away. Well, you can buy both books uh, on my website. I will autograph them and send them postage free. Uh, The website is sportsclubmanagement.org. You can buy one or both of the books. No Money Down, about the avalanche, or my life story in soccer about nomads of a soccer player. Okay, uh, there you have it. Uh, thank you so much to uh, Ron Meyer for the uh, 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 the Denver Avalanche uh, owner and operator, and uh, a, a great series of uh, of, uh, of memories and a very interesting, uh, almost step by step sort of journey uh, about what went right and what went wrong uh, in that uh, in that pursuit. And um, 
There are two books that I want to uh, refer to you that uh, Ron has published that if you want to go deeper into all of this, uh, and it's some really great stuff in, in both of them. Uh, the current one is called Memoirs of a Soccer Vagabond. Uh, it's published by Sports Club Management. Uh, you will find that uh, uh, wherever good books are sold. You'll find it on our uh, website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up uh, episode 95 and uh, you'll see a link to uh, that book. And uh, more, sp- more deeply, uh, you'll get into the uh, uh, specific uh, granulars of the story of the Denver Avalanche in uh, Ron's other book that he published in, jeez, uh, uh, when was it, 2009 from uh, Dog Ear Publishing called No Money Down, How to Buy a Sports Franchise, A Journey Through an American Dream. And that literally gets into, I mean, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, specifics around the Denver Avalanche snowcats, as you heard, uh, uh, who uh, absconded, shall we say, from the uh, uh, the Denver Broncos and quickly became uh, the official cheerleading team uh, of the Avalanche. You'll see uh, uh, pocket schedules and you'll see some articles in there. Uh, you'll see, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, the plans for uh, for radio and television advertising. And uh, it just it's really fascinating sort of kind of get a little bit of an insider's uh, view, certainly circa 1979, 70, 1980, about uh, what uh, was going through the mind of the guy behind uh, launching a franchise in a fledgling league, at that being of the uh, MISL. So if you're really interested in the Denver Avalanche story uh, in all its particulars, again, I can't uh, recommend this book highly enough, more highly enough, than uh, No Money Down, How to Buy a Sports Franchise, A Journey Through an American Dream. Again, that too is available wherever good books are sold. And of course, uh, if you want a convenient link and maybe give us a little love in the process, make sure, again, you go to goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. That's where you're going to find all of our episodes from uh, from the last uh, almost uh, two years now. Uh, and you also, in this episode 95, you will find uh, a link conveniently to that book and uh, many others. Uh, and you will give us a couple of shekels when you do so. And that's a great way to help keep this show uh, going and uh, pursuing stories and, uh, and conversations that hopefully are interesting to you. Uh, let's see. Also at goodseatsstillavailable.com, you will find all of our social links. You'll find us at Twitter at goodseatsstill. You'll find us at uh, Instagram or on Instagram, shall we say, at uh, goodseatsstillavailable. We have a uh, Facebook page devoted to the show. You can converse with us there. Uh, you can send us email directly if you can't find the link on our website, but uh, it's uh, it's simple. It's uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com and and a lot more stuff coming on that website. So uh, you can sign up for our newsletter so you don't forget any of the episodes that are coming up. Uh, All that good stuff. Uh, And before we run, we do want to say, of course, again, happy 2019. And thanks, of course, as always, to our friends at Podfly Productions. And in particular, our chief cook and bottle washer. His name is Dr. Jerry Payne. And uh, he and his team can be found at podfly.net. And uh, they are uh, supreme uh, in the uh, capabilities of putting together uh, great podcasts uh, for one and for all. And if uh, you're interested in uh, getting into the podcast game, well, by golly, Podfly Productions is the place to check out. And I highly recommend them. Podfly.net. All right. We're done for this week. I appreciate your listening. Uh, We will see you next week with God knows what kind of stories and uh, and uh, travails. But uh, we look forward to talking to you then. Until then, we uh, wish you only the best. Bye-bye.